You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Curious About Cannabis podcast once again. Uh, today, I am joined with uh, Jana Champagne, a uh, good friend of mine and nurse uh, working in the cannabis space. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. I'm excited. Yeah, totally. So let's kick this off uh, right away with a simple question. What's a cannabis nurse? Oh, great question. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised at the, at the various responses I get um, when I tell people what I do for a living. And um, yes, I'm a cannabis nurse. And, and so what I do is a lot of different roles. Uh, the main one that is my bread and butter is working directly with individual patients to assess their considerations of cannabis therapy and create a targeted care plan to help optimize their cannabis therapy outcomes. Okay. So, and, um, from what I'm familiar with, with some of your work is, um, a lot of your work with patients is really centered around like integrated medicine, like lifestyle management, that sort of thing too, not just cannabis. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and myself and my nurses that work with me through my nonprofit integrated holistic care, we all take more of a holistic approach. So we talk to the patient not only about the cannabis considerations, like, you know, what are their diagnoses, what are their symptoms, what are their priorities, but also we get into diet and lifestyle and stress management and those sorts of factors. And, and so, you know, we, we try to educate. That's our role is to educate patients on how they might improve their health overall. That's really cool because that's becoming a theme with almost everybody that I've interviewed so far as uh, usually the discussion ends up getting into um, thinking about health and wellness from a broader perspective than we're sort of conventionally trained to think about it, I guess. Um, it's so common for people to just think about health as, well, I live the way I want until I'm sick and then I take medicine, I get better and then I live the way I want again. Right. right. And um, I'm hearing this echoed more and more that, you know, no, you've really got to take a step back and look at your lifestyle and how that's affecting your body and, and how that all works together. So that's, that's great to hear. That's really, really good work. And it, it seems like the, the healthcare industry broadly is kind of, um, seems to be lagging behind a little bit. Like they're getting there. They seem to be, um, more and more accepting of that, that concept and that idea. Um, but it still seems like there's a little, little ways to go before it's. Yes. Yes. It's, it's actually, improving and especially here in Oregon I mean we're so spoiled it yeah, flows yeah. so freely and you know pretty much anybody that needs it can access it so we're very fortunate that way um, but you know it's it's our healthcare system is broken the pharmaceutical paradigm is not curative in any way shape or form with the exception of possibly like antibiotics and surgeries and things like that but when it comes to the actual right. medications it's like putting a band-aid on something that's infected and the underlying issue is not getting any better yeah. so once you start explaining to people that the way cannabis works is different it actually is targeting those underlying imbalances in the body that are creating illness and creating the symptoms and so it's a very different approach so a lot of doctors don't understand that a lot you know i haven't met a physician yet who learned anything in medical medical school yeah. about the endocannabinoid That's, system for example it's, yep. it's not taught even to this day even though you know we've had legal cannabis in Oregon for what 20 yeah. years and California even longer well, so and it blows my mind because you know like endocannabinoids it fits so perfectly into like the icosanoid category of um, like inflammatory signaling and all mm -hmm. these different things that um, fit into what 
doctors are theoretically learning about in medical school, and yet mm -hmm. this whole lipid signaling system that we call the endocannabinoid system is just largely absent, which it's been really disappointing to me, too. It's been really hard to find healthcare professionals I can talk to in any sort of uh, mm -hmm. sophisticated way about um, cannabinoid stuff. And even a lot of um, doctors and nurses that I know of that are even working with patients still are um, operating from a very, very, very basic um, understanding. Like they've just learned, you know, that there are CB1, CB2 receptors mm -hmm. and they've just, mm -hmm. you know, just started to understand all these pieces. So um, that's one reason why I'm really excited to talk to you today because you've got um, so much experience working with mm -hmm. different patients and you're, it seems like you're part of a network of healthcare professionals that are trying to work with cannabis and patients that are trying to understand cannabinoid therapies. Absolutely. It's, it's catching on and, you know, it is difficult. You know, there's a lot of stigma to overcome. There's a lot mm -hmm. of fear to overcome, but you know, once you start looking at the facts and realize that cannabis is a vital nutrient that keeps our body in balance. It, it's actually preventative for a lot of chronic illness. And we know that endocannabinoid deficiency or lack of cannabinoids in our body yeah. is linked with every chronic illness per Dr. Ethan Russo. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, when, when people start to understand how it works differently from the pharmaceuticals, um, you know, beyond that, if somebody is, is resistant to the knowledge, I often wonder if, you know, they have some, they're gaining some benefit from pharmaceutical sales or something of that nature because cannabis is the number one alternative to all pharma, in my opinion. I have dozens of patients yeah. that have reduced their reliance on pharmaceuticals um, or been able to wean completely. And of course, we prefer physician oversight with that piece as right. much as we can't we can't advise about that piece. But it is possible, and and you know, so I think that's some of the resistance we're getting from our medical industry mm -hmm. that is so pharmaceutical driven. Well, I, um, in an interview I was doing with um, a health and wellness educator, that's a good friend of mine, Matt Vogel, we ended up talking about how we've noticed that a lot of doctors and nurses are sort of um, exiting the traditional healthcare model mm -hmm. um, to get into working with cannabis because they feel like they're finally able to do some of the work that they actually signed up to do in the first place, Absolutely. which is work closely with patients mm -hmm. and try to understand what's going on, try to improve uh, quality of life right. and, and all of that, that they were kind of bound uh, for one reason or another um, mm -hmm. before. It's really interesting to watch, and it's an interesting sort of commentary um, mm -hmm. on our healthcare system. Well, yeah, and just the legalities, yeah. you know, where it's, it's so easily accessible here in Oregon, you know, someplace like Idaho, they don't even allow CBD in Idaho right. legally, quote unquote, you know. Yeah. So it's, you know, depending on where they are, that can have a lot to do with, with different oh, yeah. concerns around advising a patient to try it or, or what it might do for them. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm originally from Mississippi mm -hmm. and there is a CBD law in Mississippi now. Um, from what I hear, it's um, challenging for people to get into that program. But uh, the last time I visited um, back home, I spoke with a nurse there that told me like the dispensaries are starting to get going, but they're being run, you know, through the hospitals, um, these CBD dispensaries, but they are starting to connect with patients, but it's really slow and not really like it should be and not what people expected when they got that law passed. So right. now they're trying to get signatures to get a medical cannabis initiative on the ballot for this year. And they're, pr they're pretty close. That's awesome. Um, I'm excited to see it because I believe just from talking to people um, in Mississippi, I, 
I think that if it does get on the ballot, it'll probably pass because there's a lot of support just broadly um, for great. medical access to cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you're staying here in Oregon. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I wouldn't mind going back to uh, do some consulting or um, help, help people get some businesses going, but oh, I, yeah. I think I'll, I'll be in Oregon forever. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it's great here. So let's talk about um, some of the the types of patients and the types of conditions that you're seeing um, that people are trying to treat with cannabis. What are some of the most common uh, conditions that you see that people are, uh, we'll start with successfully treating, and then later I'd like mm-hmm. to talk about the things that seem to be, um, that don't that cannabis doesn't seem to work so well for. Okay. So we see a variety of patients, and it's myself and a couple of other nurses in my organization, and we have a variety of backgrounds. So, you know, this is nice because we can <clears throat> typically understand a patient's situation regardless mm-hmm. of what they might be going through. Um, for instance, my, my areas of specialty tend to be pediatrics and autism. I have a daughter mm-hmm. with autism, um, autoimmune, um, mental health, neuro. That's sort of mm-hmm. my, my acute care nursing background is in those areas. Uh, I have my nurse Jen, who's on staff, and her specialties are oncology oh, great. and gerontology and hospice. And then I have another nurse that just came on, and, and she's a cardiac nurse, and she also has some mental health background. Oh, wow. So you're so pretty balanced. Got, yeah, yeah. And, we're, and we're continuing to try to find more specialties. You know, there's still areas like women's health and other areas where we see patients come in, and, you know, we're having to do a lot of research, and we don't have the background. Mm-hmm. So we're still we're still looking for more nurses to kind of fill in. But, you know, we have a large variety of patients for that reason. My largest population is children with autism, okay. probably hands down. Um, a lot of autoimmune, a lot of, um, you know, just inflammatory pain syndromes. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen, I've seen it work beautifully for opioid reduction. Mm. In fact, I'm collaborating now with a, a physician in North Carolina who has a pain clinic and trying to help um, target his clients and, and what might work best for them for CBD only, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's, there's just so many things that it can be utilized for. And, and it was so funny. I had a, a, a consultation with a retired pharmacist mm. and you could tell he was questioning the science and I was sticking to the research. Yeah. And, well, that's good. Yeah. And, um, and he was saying, Jen, I just don't understand how one thing can be good for so many different conditions. Mm-hmm. And this is the shift that needs to happen. And, you know, pharmacists and doctors are used to pharmaceuticals that have, you know, one or two active ingredients right. where we have the cannabis plant that has upwards of 500 if not therapeutic thousands. components that yeah. we know of. Mm-hmm. We're finding more all the time. Yeah. And so this explains, you know, the way that it works is to, to promote balance in the body. The underlying cause of every chronic illness is underlying imbalances. So in a general way, you can see mm-hmm. how it's going to come in and, and, and kind of promote wellness overall. So it's very different. Um, and, and, you know, cancer, we've seen cancer patients that are in stage four on hospice, not eating. Of course, we encourage patients to please reach out to us before (laughs) cannabis is their last resort. But, you know, we have seen some miraculous recoveries from cancer, you know, patients who graduated from hospice, um, you know, on hospice, we, you know, we typically talk about, well, let's, let's try to promote appetite. So at least you're not starving to death from the cancer and the cachexia piece. But, you know, we always warn, you know, if, if you're really intent on letting go and passing, this could extend your life. <laughs> and, in, you yeah. know, one of the best cases was lung cancer patient and on hospice, starving to death, took cannabis just to eat. Mm-hmm. And um, six, seven years later, he's still alive and well and cancer free. Wow. 
So wow. we do have those instances, <laughs> but once again, it's not to encourage people that, oh, well, they can try everything else first and then right. bring in the cannabis. Because we also know by research that cannabis improves the efficacy of chemotherapy. Right. It's protective against the effects of radiation and against the, sim- you know, the symptoms that we often see as side effect of chemotherapy, yeah. where they lose their hunger, they, they can't eat, they don't have the yep. energy to get well. So it just works on so many different levels for people. Yeah, and uh, something that... I've talked to uh, some people before about um, that challenge of like how can cannabis treat so many things. And something mm-hmm. that I point out is, you know, you've got cancer and and all these other different things, but um, so many things are um, related, interconnected, and the inflammation piece and the immune system. Mm-hmm. I mean, because inflammation is is um, a process that the immune system uses um, to deal with. A stressor of some sort or another mm-hmm. and when you look at the at how cannabis affects inflammation mm-hmm. and immune system response that just trickles out into so many things Absolutely. um that uh, to me th- that starts to to answer that question pretty clearly it's like mm-hmm. well when you do look at the underlying causes of mm-hmm. so many chronic conditions mm-hmm. um it tends to be immune system related and in- inflammation related mm-hmm. in some form or another Absolutely. um and you know definitely there, there are things outside of that but that's what relates a lot of things together mm-hmm. um from what i've seen absolutely absolutely it's great for that and you know in my own case the reason i became a cannabis nurse was my own health failure back in 2012 and uh, it was immune related and i was very very sick and non-functional and on disability i was critical care nurse doing acute care 12 hours a day working my yeah. graduate program homeschooling my daughter with autism i mean there were some other factors <laughs> wow. like stress yeah. involved oh my gosh but, yeah. um, but you know i turned to cannabis as, a, as an alternative to opioid pain medications after totaling my car and um and knowing as a nurse you've seen these long-term opioid patients yeah, and what yeah. they go through and their gut stops working and they have tubes everywhere and they're either awake and screaming pain or completely sedated mm-hmm. and out yeah. and nothing in between and you know that's not anything anyone would would wish for yeah so but in addition to to managing my pain the cannabis actually started to rebuild my immune system wow. and now i'm healthy fairly healthy and uh functional anyway i mean yeah. it was non-functional yeah. bed bound for a long time people don't understand how sick i was i mean it was 20 pounds lighter than i am now wow. i was yeah. very very ill chronic renal failure and just all my systems were were not handling the stress very well well yeah it's definitely so. something i wouldn't i wouldn't guess by looking at you yeah yeah most people would serious yeah point. yeah and then and then it went on to help my daughter with autism a couple of years later she went into autism puberty crisis high level behaviors you know as a homeschooling mom out of home placement was not something i ever would have considered but it was almost mandated because mm-hmm. of safety issues wow and cannabis spared her that so now I actually have a plan in the next year. She's 17 now and working on um, on a model of cannabis care homes for autism here in Oregon. Wow, that's so, really exciting. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I just talked to, to my specialist yesterday about it and we're moving forward. So wow. super exciting. That's going to be, we'll have to do a follow-up um, once you get, um, you know, over the next uh, year or two and kind of mm-hmm. follow how that goes. That'll Absolutely. be really interesting. That'll be an interesting case study. Oh, yeah. Um, we can do better with the same funding. We can do so much better. Yeah. Do you mind speaking a bit about how cannabis helped your daughter um, and how it, what you tend to see in, in other autistic children as well Mm -hmm. that seem to be getting relief? I think that's something that is, um, you know, people hear about the cancer piece Mm -hmm. and inflammation and all that, but I don't, I don't think the autism piece 
people broadly hear about very much. Yeah, it, you know, it's definitely catching on. I mean, the autism community of parents is fairly close-knit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if somebody goes on a website or a blog and says something works, you can see sales of it yeah. just spike. I mean, yeah. everybody is desperate for answers. Mm -hmm. Because mainstream medicine is really failing these kids. They're falling through the cracks. Yeah. They're throwing, you know, unresearched pharmaceuticals, you know, for mental health at these kids. Yeah, just shotgun approach. Just yeah, throwing it at the wall, yeah. see what sticks. And, and we don't know what the long-term effects of those yeah. are. You know, even the the side effects we know of, like the, the extrapyramidal symptoms, are just devastating and can be permanent. Even if you stop the medication, these symptoms can go on with ticks and yeah, all yeah. kinds of problems. So there's really no good answers. And so from the research I've done with autism as a nurse with a child of autism, um, I see it as a multi-systemic disorder, and this is part mm -hmm. of why mainstream's falling apart trying to take care of it, because they don't look at how the systems are inter interconnected. And with autism, it's neurological, it's mm -hmm. gut, and it's immune system, and yeah. how those systems interact with one another. Yeah. And so if you're not looking at, at how, well, when one goes askew, what happens to the other, you really miss a lot of opportunity to target those underlying imbalances. Yeah. And pharmaceuticals aren't going to do it. They yeah. just aren't. Or cannabis has the potential to be neuroprotective, mm -hmm. balance the neurotransmitters that are out of place, uh, decrease the brain inflammation that we see as yeah, a hallmark yeah. of autism and high glutamate levels, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it has its immune modulating. So if that child's immune system is deficient, it's going to help improve it. If it's overreactive, autoimmune, it's going to help you know, kind of bring it down a notch or mm -hmm. two. And then gut. I mean, it, it's great yeah. for gut healing and gut inflammation. So it's really kind of targeting those core areas of autism that need it. Um, as far as protocols, you know, we we take an individual approach. Yeah. Every child with autism is different. <clears throat> Even if they're similar, they're different. And so I tend to look at what are those child's needs, and there's really no, oh, this is what you do for autism. Right, it's right. what are the symptoms, what are the targets, what are the parents' priority? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if that family is in crisis and that child is beating everybody up and yeah, self-injurious yeah. and destroying their home, they don't want to hear about, oh, yeah, well, this, you know, this might help balance their system. They want to know, right. what can I give my child in that hard moment right. that will stop those behaviors in its track? Yeah. So sometimes that answer is THC, even though we're really cautious in always balancing the risk and benefit of using THC in children mm -hmm. because, you know, research supports that it can cause neurodevelopmental issues. Right, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's always about targeting you know, what we see is, is the major issue and which component is best for that is going to differ based yeah. on that child's situation, based on where the family is located, based mm -hmm. on the legalities. Um, there's just so many factors that come into play. Yeah, well, it's good to hear you say that because floating around on the internet, there are so many simplified explanations mm -hmm. of, you know, how to use cannabis therapeutically and, mm -hmm. um, you know, these sort of DIY models of, oh, you just take, you know, X amount of, you know, this, you know, uh, chemical profile or, or worse than that, just saying a strain name, just find this strain name. Oh, no, and, no, no, um, no. It, that drives me crazy because yeah. I'm like, well, there's <clears throat> so many layers of why that's bad. But, um, I mean, with, with medicine broadly, it is so much of an individualized thing. And, um, you know, the, the piece about THC is interesting, you know, it's like, well, you know, okay, yeah, there are some risks with administering THC. However, you know, it's about the situation and how critical is that situation Absolutely. and mm -hmm. what are the risks if you don't. Right. Um, and what's, you know, mm -hmm. what's going to happen and um, weighing those options. I've, I've run into that concept in other scenarios mm -hmm. um, 
you know, uh, friends that are resistant to, you know, different types of medical treatments. And it's like, well, what's your situation? And what's mm-hmm. going to happen if you, if you don't, um, I know right. you, you may not like it, but you know, it's about quality of life and, mm-hmm. you know, all these different pieces. Well, and, and a lot of parents want to keep their children in home. And mm-hmm. if they're at crisis levels, you know, their kid is making a lot of noise, the neighbors are calling the cops, CPS gets right. involved. I mean, there's all kinds of curveballs that can happen in that scenario. So I- if you can manage behaviors, get that family out of crisis, mm-hmm. then they can kind of take a breath, take a step back, and start looking at other things they might do to help their child. Because they don't want to hear about diet, and they don't want to hear about, yeah. um, you know, some of these other alternatives for autism. They want to know, what can I do right now to calm down my child and get out of this crisis? Yeah. And that's not the time to teach about things like genetic <laughs> assessment and how you can, yeah. you know, you can delve a little deeper into that and, and target some of the contributors. Right. Um, so it's just about meeting the patients where they're at. And really the general protocols are so, I mean, like the Rick Simpson oil protocol for cancer. Don't ever do that. Anybody, please <laughs> <laughs> call a medical professional, you know, taking 500 milligrams a day of THC. If you're on immunotherapy could stop the activity of the immunotherapy yeah, and totally yep. cancel it out. So there are considerations in everybody's individual situation. You know, what, what medications are they taking? Yeah, what yeah. symptoms are they targeting? Um, you know, there's general recommendations around autism and CBD and for some kids, CBD is great. Mm-hmm. For other kids, CBD is really horrific and will actually increase behaviors. Well, yeah, I mean, so I've... you can't just randomly show, you know, follow what somebody types online. Right. And what <laughs> works for one person won't necessarily work for someone else. Um, right. A lot of the research around epilepsy and mm-hmm. CBD as well as THC has mm-hmm. shown that, you know, yeah, in about a third of patients, um, it works really well. Mm-hmm. And in about another third or so, it doesn't seem to do much. And for mm-hmm. another third, it exacerbates the problem. Yeah. And, you know, and trying mm-hmm. to understand that it's um, with cannabis, just like anything else, it's not a cure-all. And no. everyone's different. Absolutely. Every situation's unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, segues into what I think does not get talked about enough, which is um, through your experience, what does cannabis tend to not work so well for and then to piggyback on that um i'd also like to talk about interactions with medications and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing yeah so so cannabis can definitely interact with meds um that's one of the big areas we assess with patients in fact we have a list of criteria on our website under the faq that it kind of guides patients through a questionnaire Mm. um you know do you have a cardiac condition do you have cancer do you have diabetes you know is it for a child or adolescent do you want to individualize approach, things like that, um, where they should seek medical oversight of their yeah. cannabis therapy. And pharmaceutical interactions are probably the big one that could potentially cause harm. And I know that is such an unpopular message, but I've seen some close calls. I've yeah. seen some near misses. And I'm telling you, in a perfect storm scenario, somebody could get harmed. And then the reputation of cannabis is a safe medication goes out the window. Right. So we're trying to prevent that. We're also trying to, you know, of course, we want to protect patients as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, I had an 80 something year old woman with chronic pain in Michigan and she went into a dispensary, which she called a health clinic. She yeah. thought she was yeah. getting medical advice. Yeah. And, you know, for chronic pain, never used cannabis. She was taking metoprolol, which interacts with THC in a way that can cause somebody to think they're having a heart attack and they end up in the ER. Yeah. This bed tender sold her a 300 milligram THC candy bar. But don't worry, he told her to only eat half. Oh my I mean, gosh, this poor woman was high for days, and thank God she happened to space it away from her medications, or that could have been a real problem. 
So, you know, these, and that's just, you know, a medication interaction, but then you have other interactions with like chemotherapies where it's, where combined with CBD, it can expedite liver failure. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, there's definitely reasons to seek medical oversight, um, you know, when, when those conditions are are present. And what would be your advice to someone that does not have access to a healthcare professional that understands cannabis very well or cannabinoid treatments? Um, what would be your recommendation to them on how they should talk to their healthcare professional, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the context of CBD, because that today is going to be probably more prevalent mm-hmm. um, than anything since um, the CBD market's just exploding yes. and the regulatory oversight's kind of weird it on is. it. Um, yeah, and CBD has the most interactions with pharmaceuticals. Right, in the way I it mean, affects the liver. Yeah, <laughs> if you're taking yeah. warfarin and you combine it with CBD, it's going to increase the, the efficacy of the warfarin, and you can see where internal bleeding could be a potential yeah, side effect yeah. of that. So, um, you know, it, it, so we serve patients all over the world. Mm-hmm. We have patients in every state of the U.S. and internationally. So we're always available to help patients if they have questions. Um, we have a lot of information on the website, and we work with a lot of doctors. Um, you know, if, if the doctor has questions, we want them involved. We want them mm-hmm. we want them asking. And outreach to doctors and other nurses is a big part of what we've begun doing. Um, and, and I am a founding member of Cannabis Nurses Network, and we mm-hmm. do a lot of nursing education and continuing education units. Um, and so this is how we're going to reach more patients is by teaching the medical professionals. Yeah. Because I can tell you, as one nurse, the need is so profound. It's more than any one person can do. Yeah. So we, you know, we're really trying to bring together these groups of like-minded nurses and medical professionals that are willing to be warriors for this plant, and, and really stand up against the stigma and educate. Mm-hmm. Educate. It's, yeah. It's so. Well, weird. that's yeah. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Absolutely. It's like Thank you, you know, <laughs> trying to get these <laughs> critical conversations going, and I I really emphasize the word critical because. You know, my my intention is to try to talk to people that understand um, some of the nuance behind mm-hmm. all of the stuff and that it's not mm-hmm. straightforward. It's mm-hmm. not a cure all. There are all these considerations. Absolutely. And however, understanding those considerations, um, you know, cannabis can be very safe uh, for most people in most scenarios and um, and can um, be a tool for, for people to try. And I try to say, you know, everything is a tool in the tool chest and cannabis is. is another tool as well. Absolutely. And, and for some people, it's a very powerful tool mm-hmm. and for other people, not so much. And, yeah. you know, and that's fine. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so this is why, you know, we, we have the questionnaire so we can guide patients that might benefit from a consult, but mm-hmm. we also have a patient handbook for those patients that say no to all those self questionnaire inquiries and with the handbook they can pretty much get through on their own and manage and and learn the general information that we normally teach during a consultation and so we really try to reach the patient regardless of whether they're gonna come and do a full consultation you know our goal is to educate and you know we educate freely as much as we can we do a lot of a lot of presentations and we speak at conferences just getting the word out and and sometimes just planting that seed you know I don't know. I find that that even the most closed off people tend to come around once they see 
the benefit of mm -hmm. cannabis in themselves or a loved one. And yeah. then it's like, whoa, hey, there's something to this. And then they start researching and they see, wow, it doesn't really belong on Schedule 1. It meets zero <laughs> of the criteria. Right, Why yeah. is it on there? And, you know, back in the <laughs> 80s, we had a DEA judge say cannabis should be removed right. from Schedule 1. Yeah. And here we are 30 years later. Yep. You know, they fired that judge, brought in another right. one and yep. overturned it immediately. Yep. Oh, and then they went and applied for the government patent for cannabis as medicine, 6630507. Yeah. So there's just so much hypocrisy and, and so much obvious focus on choosing profit over patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as medical professionals, we take oaths saying we will do what's best for the patients. We will teach yeah. the patients, yep. you know, how to weigh the benefit or the risk of any intervention. And nine times out of 10, cannabis is that answer. Well, yeah. And it's, uh, so the Hippocratic Oath, that's mm -hmm. an interesting thing to bring up mm -hmm. because um, from what I'm learning, um, it's like, a lot of healthcare professionals have their hands tied behind their backs because of things like insurance companies, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, different agreements with uh, pharmaceutical companies, ethics boards, all sorts mm -hmm. of different things that um, seem to be stripping the autonomy away mm -hmm. from healthcare professionals. And like, yes. oh, well, even if I think that cannabis might be a good tool to try, I can't take the risk of presenting that to mm -hmm. my patient because you know, then I might lose my license or, you right. know, I might not, um, you know, a lot of healthcare professionals are basically leasing space at hospitals and different mm -hmm. hospitals moving around. It's like, well, that hospital might not right. let me work there anymore. Right. There's all these different pieces that mm -hmm. are motivating healthcare professionals to kind of clam up and keep working within, you know, the system as is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't blame them for being extremely um, cautious and conservative. Um, however, yes, you know it's you've, the education piece is critical, and that Hippocratic oath. Um, you know, I think that's the biggest piece of like we need to look at things that are keeping healthcare mm -hmm. professionals from upholding the oath they took to yes. to um, you know take care of people. Because mm -hmm. if something's getting in the way of that, then that's a huge, huge problem. Mm -hmm. Um, it is. And it's fear. It's fear is yeah. the biggest hurdle to cannabis, fear of the stigma, fear of the propaganda, you yeah. know, the reefer madness that everybody was subjected to back <laughs> in the 50s. It, when realistically, if you look at the history, the cannabis was used as our medicine mm -hmm. in cultures around the world for thousands of years, safely across yeah. the lifespan from infancy to end of life, everything yep. in between for dozens of dis in, in, disorders. In our pharmacopoeia for up until the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was like 42, mm -hmm. um, that issue when it was finally taken out um, yep. after Anslinger's business in the 30s. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that a lot of people don't realize. It's like uh, old school pharmacies sold cannabis tinctures and, you know, and, and various preparations of cannabis. And it was called cannabis. It wasn't called marijuana. Right. Um, yeah, marijuana is the term that was meant to increase the stigma against Mexican-Americans, Mary and Juan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, there's there's debate now in the industry. I, I try to stay away from the term marijuana altogether. Yes. Um, there are some people fighting to, like, reclaim the term. And if they want to do that, that's fine. But to me, and even the term hemp, I don't like the term hemp either. It's like, this is all one plant. Mm -hmm. Like, it let's is. just talk about what it is. It's cannabis right. and there are THC rich versions and yep. CBD rich versions yep. and different growth forms. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a highly, um, variable plant, which is, is really, really cool. It's, it it's, it's really a, interesting. It's just amazing how many things it, it produces. And, you know, when you look at, at 1937 too, when, when they took cannabis 
basically off of the market by taxing the heck out of it. Uh, the AMA was against it. Yeah. They were dead set against it. And a lot of physicians didn't know what was happening because they called it the Marijuana Tax Act and they right. knew it as cannabis. Right. So yep. a lot of physicians found out after the fact and they're like, what the heck did they just do? Like, this is bad. So, I mean, historically, our physicians knew how important it was. Mm-hmm. And they, they were fooled. They were they were lied to and they were... Yeah. They, what's I can't think of that term. They were punked. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. And now there's been such a generational gap from, uh, you know, people that were alive then mm-hmm. when all of that happened that now very few people understand... Um, what actually happened when that change occurred and they mm-hmm. just assume that like oh well, the cannabis cannabis has been a you know a, a drug that um you know has been a problem for a long time and um we've got to be careful about cannabis abuse and of course you know you do have to be uh careful about the abuse of anything uh, including food oh yeah <laughs> well yeah uh, you know mm-hmm. um and that's uh, something in, in some of these interviews I, I try to get into the harm reduction pieces too, um, Absolutely. which I mean, maybe that's something we can talk about. So um, one piece, let's have a pretend scenario. Someone has decided to try cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using a THC rich version uh-huh. and they get uncomfortably high. What can they do? Oh gosh, so many things. Um, one of the easiest things is hopefully if, they have cannabis products, they've got some high CBD, mm-hmm. something or other on hand. And CBD will actually counteract that intoxicating effect of THC. Um, they can chew black peppercorns. or some products on the market, um, one called Undo, that actually yeah. re- it, it cleans that the CB1 based. receptor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's lots of different things we can do. Um, but basically, we try to teach patients how to start slowly, increase slowly, you know, approach mm-hmm. it conservatively so that they don't get into a scenario where they overdose. Yeah. And, you know, we also teach that overdose may be very uncomfortable, and I've experienced it myself. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> My yeah. first time making edibles, I had the <laughs> decimal point one space over, and instead of 10 milligrams Order per brownie, they were 100 milligrams per brownie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> my wow. husband ate three of them and oh was high gosh. for days. I ate one and vomiting and vertigo and yeah. crawling into bed hoping I would wake up the next morning. Of course I did. Yeah. Um, so while it can be really unpleasant, it's not It's not something that is like the opioids where if you overdose on pain medications, it'll stop your breathing. Right. You know, cannabis is a lot safer that way. But we try to teach patients how to avoid that scenario to begin with. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Um, the I think it's called uh, the start low and go slow model. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, with things like cancer, we have patients working up to fairly intensive dosing, sometimes several hundred milligrams a day of, of cannabinoids. But usually, if you titrate slowly, you know, they they can manage that intoxicating piece and let their body build up tolerance mm. over time yeah. and really avoid a lot of that unpleasantness. And then, I mean, what like with autism, I have kids managing on two milligrams a day and kids that require 200 milligrams a day and everything in between. Yeah. And very rarely do the parents report intoxication because these kids are at such a severe endocannabinoid deficiency. Mm-hmm. It's just filling in that hole. Well, so they don't, they don't even get enough to, to get that intoxicating effect. That's actually really interesting um, to hear because that's mm-hmm. something I've um, experienced personally of people mm-hmm. I know uh, that can use THC rich cannabis mm-hmm. and seem to experience no um, 
functional sign impairment. of behavioral change <laughs> right. really yeah right. they're just they kind of maintain uh, being what most people call normal mm-hmm. um, whereas other people are super sensitive and the smallest mm-hmm. amount and they're hyper paranoid mm-hmm. um, and and really can't function um, so it's it's that's Genetics. an interesting piece to recognize right. is that um, there are some people that cannabis just affects very, very differently mm-hmm. than others. Absolutely. And it goes back to genetics. And that's another area I specialize in. Um, this, it's not exactly cannabis related, but you can actually look at somebody's genetic profile um, and, and kind of determine which components of cannabis might be optimal, which ones might be problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only hard known contraindication to THC is a genetic mutation called AKT1 and it's associated with schizophrenia. Mm. Um, and it's theorized that if somebody with AKT1 homozygous mutation takes too much THC, it could actually trigger yeah. um, schizophrenia or trigger a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always, you're always wanting to look at what does that patient need? And, um, and you know, the, 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 just the potential of, using genetics and nutrigenomics to guide cannabis therapy is so exciting to me. I'm a total cannabis nerd. Oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. No, and yeah, the the genetic testing stuff in general, I know Mm -hmm. it still has a ways to go as far as technology and everything, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, that is uh, the future of medicine is being able to narrow in on potential best treatments Mm -hmm. uh, from the get-go without having to... um, you know, bombard somebody with all sorts of different drugs to find out what works. Right. Uh, my personal experience when I was um, when I was a teenager, I had several uh, different accidents where I um, hurt my spine. Mm. I cracked my tailbone. Um, I've got bulging di- three different bulging discs, mm-hmm. and then um, I've actually got cysts along my spinal cord too. So Ouch. a lot of um, back pain, a lot mm-hmm. of spinal pain, yeah. nerve pain in general, and. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I was seeing a doctor about it, and uh, they put me through some pretty intense drug trials mm-hmm. to try to find something that would work, mm-hmm. and it was traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through uh, using um, off-label antidepressants to try to treat it, mm. uh, steroids, mm-hmm. um, muscle relaxers, uh, all sorts of different things, and just going through those trials of like spending a couple of weeks taking a drug, trying to see if it works, titrating off, mm-hmm. going on something else. You know, there were two or three months of my life where um, I felt like my body and mind were just twisted mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was like I was just getting beaten up, especially mm-hmm. with the steroids. That was really rough. Yeah. Um, and those are awful. They're like, they'll melt your internal organs with long-term use. Yeah. Not pleasant. It, well, and it's one of those things. It's like, why <laughs> am I even trying this if I can't take it long-term? Right, You know, right. and it's like well-known that you can't take steroids uh, chronically, yeah. although some people do. Um, I have friends and family that um, for certain uh, immunological conditions are taking steroids mm-hmm. chronically. Um, yeah, which, cannabis is the better option. Yeah. It's safer, and it balances the immune system without destroying tissue. Yeah, and creating a, a dependency for other things mm-hmm. to counteract all of those, those side effects. But yeah, that was... I have a lot of empathy now for other people that go through similar drug trials mm-hmm. and any tool, technology, like genetic testing that can help... Um, narrow down some of that mm-hmm. um, and avoid you know, people having to go through that would be great. I have a really good friend of mine uh, that was diagnosed with schizophrenia, mm-hmm. also went through all sorts of drug trials, um, experienced um, one of the side effects he experienced from one of the medications is a tick that yep. won't, won't go away. It's permanent now. Mm-hmm. 
Um, And, you know, he's not taking that drug anymore. Um, It didn't work well enough. He had to come Mm -hmm. off of it, but he's stuck with a side effect, a neurological (sighs) side effect, um, theoretically forever. Um, Yeah, potentially. Amino acid repletion. I've seen that reverse extrapyramidal symptoms that were thought to be permanent. Oh, wow. ongoing 10 years, so... There are some options. That's good. There good are to some know. Options. I'll have to have him uh, listen to listen yeah, to this. Yeah, call me. Yeah, <laughs> give him my number. <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, I mean they have like the gene site testing that they're using to to specifically look at mental health medications. But all it's really assessing is like some of the neurotransmitter pathways and how that medication metabolizes. So looking at the different mm-hmm. liver pathways yeah. and trying to use that to pinpoint which medication might be best. And, you know, I have a case study that's local here, a boy with autism and schizophrenia both mm-hmm. went through a pretty severe crisis recently. And they they exhausted that list of potentially helpful medications for him. Yeah. And we did his genetics and we got him on some supplementation and we got him on CBD, which CBD is perfectly fine to take with schizophrenia. It's just that THC piece that we're careful about. Yeah. And he's doing better now than he was on any of the meds ever. Wow. He's got quality of life. You know, his family's out of crisis. He's able to enjoy his his siblings and his. He's got a little a little baby niece. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's just amazing the difference well, that, that the approach can make. The little things that a lot of people take for granted, mm-hmm. you know, of being able to just enjoy being present with mm-hmm. your loved ones. Absolutely. Um, you know that there are a lot of people around us every day that don't have that luxury mm-hmm. that, you know, are always fighting a crisis. Yeah. And, and it's the patient stories that, that keep me going. I mean, there's a lot of gray area being a nurse in this industry. And even though it's patient education and we're careful to cite research for everything we teach, um, there's a lot of nurses that are too afraid to do this work. Oh yeah. And yeah. I'm one of, I only know about a dozen of us that are actually doing clinical application of cannabis therapy. There's a lot of nurses that know the theory and they know the endocannabinoid system mm-hmm. science. But when it comes to learning the considerations and learning what to ask patients in different mm-hmm. scenarios, we don't have a program to teach that. Well, and there's so much too that's undocumented as given some of the limitations of research of just what patient outcomes are. Absolutely. Um, and so having that firsthand experience is, you know, the only way you're going to learn some of that nuance mm-hmm. of how people are going to likely respond um, to treatment. And that lets you know things to look out for, warning signs that, mm-hmm. you know, may come up um, yeah. during treatments. And um, what to teach the patient to watch for. Yeah. You know, if a patient's on hypertension medications and they want to try CBD for pain, we still teach watch your blood pressure, take it every day. If it's low, you know, don't take one or the other and document it for your physician and start talking to them about, I'm taking this and it's lowering my blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Can we start to wean off the pharma? Yeah. So, well, I mean, we do a lot of that, that this is possible. And we really try to come up with all the possibilities, as scary as they might be. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to teach like, you know, some people that take THC with melatonin end up with hallucinations, mm-hmm. but there are products on the market that combine THC and melatonin. So I know it's yeah. not everybody, well, and, uh, but pa- we still teach that. So the patient, you know, they're not surprised by it. Yeah. A paper just came out recently. I don't know if you saw it, but melatonin was found in cannabis. Oh, I did not know cannabis that. Cannabis actually makes uh, melatonin. I wonder what level, though. I know. I'm sure. Maybe it's like the higher doses of melatonin or something. Oh, I'm sure. I've I'm seen sure a few it's. Cases. I'm sure it's low dose, but it was just fascinating mm-hmm. to me. I was like, mm-hmm. huh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder what you know plants using melatonin for. Yeah, uh, and melatonin works in you know crosses over some of the mechanism of action with CBD. They both increase serotonin. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, those parts of it are okay, and I, I have don't even have a theory on why. 
THC and melatonin causes hallucinations, but it seems it seems prevalent in autism really? responses. Well, which I know of course most parents with autism are using melatonin because it's protective of right. the brain. Yeah. So. Well, I know um, just from personal experience, melatonin can trigger some pretty wicked lucid dreams. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it increases REM for sure. Yeah. Um, a very very vivid vivid dreams. Yes. Um, that yeah can mm-hmm. be really really intense. So mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there and then THC disrupts REM. Mm-hmm, and um so i've maybe got it's a, that battle yeah i know them. yeah maybe theory, there is some, yeah i like it there we go put my stamp on it figured it out <laughs> we yeah. got it how <laughs> oh, to be on the a fly on the wall in right. our conversations yeah. right <laughs> but it, you know it's it's interesting there's got to be something going on in that that tug of war mm-hmm. and um yeah it's uh there's there's so many tug of wars happening uh when you uh consume uh cannabis or any sort of medicinal plant with a mm-hmm. broad uh phytochemistry that it, mm-hmm. it's it's hard to really figure out exactly what's going on I, I had a really good conversation with dr kevin spellman recently mm-hmm. um about this and he was talking about how um you know really uh, when it comes to cannabis research we need to focus on patient outcomes and stop mm-hmm. worrying so much about mechanisms um oh, because <laughs> you know it's like you have to understand some mechanisms for sure um, but if you get too caught up in the allure of understanding exactly what's going on before being willing to try something, mm-hmm. um, then you're potentially limiting yourself permanently because some of these interactions are so complex, we will not understand them um, within our lifetimes in any oh, you know gosh. really sophisticated way yeah. that's going to allow us to predict, you know, really, you know, perfectly what's going to happen, you know, mm-hmm. given whatever scenario that someone tries something. You know. Well, yeah. And how many pharmaceuticals do we have that we use and we know the outcomes, but we have no clue how they work? Right. You know, yeah. we don't know the mechanism of action. I heard that over and over in my pharmacology classes. Right. So, you know, that makes sense. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little more optimistic, but I, I, I agree with you. We're very much in our infancy in this industry and our knowledge of the plant, we've been stunted thanks to almost a century of prohibition. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, what I tell people is if anybody proclaims to know everything, back away slowly, <laughs> right, yeah. eye contact, and say goodbye, because that person's going to be obsolete very quickly. Yeah. Because we're learning more every day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just our concept of what the endocannabinoid system is is changing rapidly um, as far as the, uh, mm-hmm. the different types of receptors that we're considering yeah. part of uh, the endocannabinoid system. You know, it's way beyond CB1 and CB2 now. Um, you've got the vanilloid oh, yeah. receptors. You've mm-hmm. got um, G-protein. Yeah, unnamed G-protein coupled uh-huh. receptors that just have numbers associated <laughs> with them, 18 and 35 and 55, all these right. different ones. You've got uh, PPAR gamma receptors, adenosine mm-hmm. receptors, even serotonin receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, we're finding that uh, a lot of receptors um, appear alongside cannabinoid receptors mm-hmm. and that they're influencing each other, yeah. um, you know, right next to each other on these uh, cell walls. Serotonin is a great example. Oh, yes. um, a lot of times you'll find serotonin receptors and CB1 receptors right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just getting more and more complex, um, but it, it's just highlighting um, just how intimate the endocannabinoid system is woven into our physiology it's connected to everything and knowing the genetic piece and the cannabinoid pathway genetics it crosses over the neurotransmitters Mm -hmm. it crosses over the vitamin d pathway and the gc math pathway Mm -hmm. of the immune system um it it gut pathways the fet2 pathway i mean 
those are all linked with the endocannabinoid system. And, you know, once again, this is where we're failing in mainstream medicine is we're not looking at the body as a whole. We're looking yeah. at it as, oh, if you have a neurological problem, you go to the neurologist and he wants <laughs> right. to stay in the little neuro box. Yeah. If you have and a they, GI problem, you go to the blinders. gastroenterologist and they want to stay in their GI box. And the immunologist yeah. wants to stay in his immunology box. Everything's connected, people. And yeah. we need to start looking at how those connections impact overall health. And that's when we'll finally be on to some more curative approaches yeah. in our healthcare system. Yeah. I, um, something I've gotten into before, but uh, it's, you know, thinking about the, the human body as a, a system, an ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, a network of ecosystems, really. Um, and, you know, my, my original background in science is biology and ecology, mm-hmm. and uh, it's all translated so well into pharmacology um, because I've, I'm already primed to think about like, okay, there's sort of this fractal nature of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got this ecosystem, and then when you focus on a piece of that, there's another system that's part of that, more systems. And if you tweak things here or there, you're going to have unintended consequences on other things. Mm-hmm. You've got cascading effects that happen, and... Um, it's very clear that the the human body is the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to something you mentioned about autism, the link between um, mental health, gut health, um, the immune system, yes. you know, that's coming up. Uh, there's been some newer research that's come up about schizophrenia that's shown the exact yes, same thing, absolutely. that um, the gut is influencing, you know, mm-hmm. the mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and brain through, inflammation, and, too. Yeah, and through um, immune system mm-hmm. um, responses and, and inflammation and all mm-hmm. of that, and that it's this the cycle and system yep. that's happening. And if you're just trying to treat the um, neurological piece and you're not treating the gut health piece, right. the inflammation piece and all these others, then you're still, you're fighting kind of a, um, not necessarily a losing battle, but a very, very difficult battle to win if you're not, yeah. you know, taking those other pieces into account. And there's actually a diet, it's called gut and psychology syndrome or GAPS diet mm. that has shown some great promise actually reversing symptoms of schizophrenia bipolar borderline mm-hmm. some of the big ones yeah um just by healing the gut yeah by changing the diet by cleaning it up so yeah. i mean it, it's all connected and i've even heard things like leaky gut syndrome means leaky blood brain barrier so they're very closely connected i think there's a two closely connected systems in the body to yeah. be honest and then of course you know 70 to 80 percent of the immune system resides in the gut so <laughs> right, there's that yeah. connection <laughs> yeah yeah it's like just that little piece yeah well, you know, <laughs> no big deal yeah right yeah. <laughs> just ignore it most of the time but you know mm-hmm. and i think most autism begins in the gut yeah so it begins with gut impact yeah well it'll be interesting to see how um science progresses in that regard because autism is one of those things that um it's sort of um going through such an overhaul in how it's characterized absolutely um and bipolar is also like mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. i mean a lot of things um fibromyalgia is another good example mm-hmm. of <laughs> it's such just, spectrums of yeah exactly thing. they they are spectra mm-hmm. and um they're not a single thing mm-hmm. um and we have to be careful when we talk about uh medical conditions that we recognize that actually when we're using a single phrase mm-hmm. to describe a condition we're actually talking about like a whole host of a uh, whole spectrum of different um, symptom presentations and Absolutely. Uh, states of being. Yeah, that individualized approach is so important. And, you know, children with autism, I see some that are on the higher functioning and they have social anxiety. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe some other difficulties with ADD, ADHD. 
uh, well, that approach is going to be probably CBD focused versus a child that is in full on crisis and they're self-injurious and they're biting themselves or they're smashing themselves in the head and having to wear a helmet um, or, you know, destroying the home, it, you mm-hmm. know, or they, they can't go out of their home because of their sensory defensiveness and right. just yeah. too much noise, too many crowds, yeah, too much light and they melt down. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking for that sensory deafening, when we're looking for, for that piece, THC tends to work better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, self-injury, I translate that to mean pain. This child is in pain and they're, you know, my daughter used to knuckle herself in the sternum mm. till she bruised. Mm. And the sternum as a nurse is where we would rub rub a patient if they were unconscious to see if they were responsive to pain because it's a very sensitive area. Yeah. And she would do that till she bruised. And I thought, gosh, why, why would somebody do that? And mm-hmm. then... Here we are with the answer, endorphins. Wow. They're after their own body to release endorphins, yeah. which is the natural pain relief. So and, and that that has held true for so many of my clients. You know, we get them on a good pain solution with some mm-hmm. THCA and some THC, and the self-interest behaviors recede. Yeah. So, well, you know, it's really, the approach is very individualized. For yeah, and, and learning to read that language. Um, Absolutely. That's a really interesting piece to bring mm-hmm. up of... You know, you have to figure out what's being communicated that mm-hmm. can't be communicated directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and most of the kids with self-interest behaviors are nonverbal yeah. or limited verbal. They can't express their needs. They can't tell you what's happening. Um, and knowing most kids with autism have brain inflammation, mm-hmm. can you imagine the headaches they must right. be having? Yeah. You know, yeah. this explains why these kids Jeez. are knuckling themselves in the head. Yeah, um, just trying to get something to happen to yeah. change. Yeah, there's <laughs> the some profound videos like on YouTube. If you look up the Zartler family, they mm-hmm. have a, a daughter with autism and CP, and they're in Texas, and they've been using THC inhaled in a vapor machine mm-hmm. for her. And it's the only thing that will stop her beating herself in the head. Wow. And, it's, and you see the videos, you see her beating herself up and they give her a puff off the vape and then she's just calm and happy Mm -hmm. and she's in her chair and it's all good. So it just, it's amazing what it can do for these kids and these families. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it's intense. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Every parent of of a severe child with autism has PTSD in my opinion. Yeah, no, the parents can benefit too. (laughs) No, for sure. Um, you know, these are traumatic experiences for everyone involved and anybody that cares about that child, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and even for people with different conditions that can verbalize what they're feeling, you know, as humans, sometimes we're just not very good at knowing mm-hmm. what we actually want or need mm-hmm. or, um, you know, I, even with myself, like there are times, I, you know, I'll feel a certain way and, you know, uh, my wife will ask me what's going on and be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I I just know I feel this way and I'm too caught up in how I'm feeling to even think about why or right. what. And um, so it's it brings up the, an important piece of like mindfulness of trying to uh, take a step back and try to observe and listen right. and interpret, um, try to make some sense of what's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, think that sometimes that um for families that are caught up in trying to take care of somebody that needs a lot of help that it's also um urgent Mm -hmm. and overwhelming that it's really really hard to um, be able to find that that place of distance to try to 
evaluate what might be really going on and what someone might really need. Even just, just having an infant, I go through that on a regular yeah. basis of yeah. like, oh my gosh, like, why are you upset? Like, Behavior is communication. Remember that, right, Jason. Exactly. Behavior is communication. Yeah, it's like you're crying. I fed you. I changed your diaper. It you know, shouldn't be like, punished. Right. It should be, you what know, do you, you should need? attempt to understand. Yeah, like, I want to make you happy. Three in the morning is not so easy, <laughs> you're right? right, yeah. <laughs> So uh, coming back to, to cannabis, um, mm-hmm. based on your experiences, what would you say are some of the top misconceptions that people have about cannabis or cannabinoids or the endocannabinoid system, whatever direction you want to go with that? What are some oh, of the gosh. things you come across frequently? Just breaking the stigma, you know, unveiling the stigma. It's so profound, especially in certain generations like the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, are one that are so resistant because that reefer madness mentality. They were told it was it would make you do evil things. They were mm-hmm. told it meant you were a bad person and you would be sexually promiscuous in the age of squares. I mean, it was it was like the worst possible thing they could tell those yeah. that generation. And um, you know, thankfully, I'm seeing a lot of baby boomers call me. Yeah. And even that first step of saying, okay, I'm not sure this is what I want to pursue, but I just want more information. Yeah, I just want to learn. It's huge. And, yeah. Just that openness. Um, and th- don't get me wrong, there's definitely, my family included, there are, are baby boomers that are still dead set against it. They won't look at the research. They don't want to hear the outcomes. Um, you know, in my case, cannabis, sa- I credit it with saving my life, and it spared my daughter out of home placement. And my family still rejected you know, our use of it. And, yeah. and of course, my dad was a minister turned prison guard, so that might have had something to do with <laughs> it. But, um, you know, I, most of the time when they see a, a positive benefit is when they finally start to go, wow, there might be something to this. Mm-hmm. And then you start teaching the facts and you start showing them the links of, you know, the hypocrisy that's behind the cannabis prohibition mm-hmm. and how, in my opinion, it's, it's strictly in the interest of sparing the pharmaceutical profits it's not in the best interest of patients. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I know that cannabis has the capacity to revolutionize our healthcare system. But in order to do that, we need we need solid education. We need people to we need to start teaching it in medical schools for one. We need the physicians to <laughs> yeah, understand be a great it. Start. Because sometimes we have patients go to the physician and the physician's like, Oh, I can't do that. That's not gonna help you. Yeah. You know, at best oftentimes they say, Well, try it if you want, but don't talk to me about it, you know. Yeah. So I think that's where it starts is, is br- making it an acceptable option for patients, yeah. helping them understand that risk versus benefit when you're looking at the pharmaceutical options or the more invasive options even yeah. versus the cannabis. And, you know, yeah. why not try it? Most yeah. of the time, it's an acceptable option. Well, yeah, that's that's a, a piece that um, I end up bringing up a lot is um, shouldn't the safety profile have value? Mm-hmm. You know, when considering the treatment, um, absolutely. And so often, um, cannabis ends up being sort of a, at least these days. I think it will change, but um, it's so often a last resort mm-hmm. um, option for a lot of people. When mm-hmm. you know, to me, that's that's super interesting because it's, um, you know, granted, you know, there are contraindications, there are limitations, mm-hmm. there are things to be aware of uh, to reduce um, harm and, and maximize safety. However, it for most people, it is a very safe option um, compared to some of the potential outcomes uh, from other therapies. Absolutely. Um, and so the idea that it's a last resort just seems out of place. It's like, shouldn't it be tried out earlier 
Um, and if it doesn't work, then go to something more extreme rather than, than the opposite. That's what we agree to in our medical oaths that we take <laughs> right. about patient care is that we will teach them the most conservative approach and we will teach them to weigh the risk versus benefit. Do the least harm. So they can make an informed decision about their own care and have that patient autonomy. And that's largely been stripped away. Well, yeah. And uh, something I brought up in a previous interview, but uh, something that drives me crazy is direct consumer drug advertising. And mm -hmm. that patients are going in to see a doctor I saying, um, I, I saw the ad on TV. I want to take this drug. And, um, and then the doctor is kind of, you know, has to kind of go into this tug of war with a patient who has already decided mm -hmm. what drug they want to take. Yep. Um, and, and then they're, a variety of other factors too that that end up influencing that that whole um, interaction between the doctor and the um, and the patient. But that's something that that really bugs me. Um, mm -hmm. And um, you know, there's only a couple of countries in the world that allow that direct consumer advertising of drugs. Yeah. And um, you know, talking about you know earlier we we're talking about um, doctor autonomy, uh, and now you're talking about patient autonomy mm -hmm. and. Um, if we want to try to improve the healthcare system rapidly, which I, I think it does need to happen rapidly, I think it's happening, but it's happening very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we need to focus on how to, how do we enhance uh, healthcare professional autonomy and um, and patient autonomy and um, patient compliance mm -hmm. um, with uh, different therapies not bailing on something um, too quickly or denying possible treatment options um, mm -hmm. uh, based on stigma and that yep. sort of thing. Um, That's where education can help all of those areas you yeah. just mentioned. Doctor education, patient education, yeah. stigma education. Um, you know, and another big problem with the pharmaceutical commercials is, you know, they're, they're running on these these media outlets that also... Give us our news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you yeah. know, we see a lot of instances where something big will happen with a pharmaceutical company and, you know, a, a, a medication is black boxed. And, and when you look a little deeper into that, um, you see the pharmaceutical companies are paying for the research. And if they don't get the research outcomes they want, they'll repeat it until they do. Right. And they may have done 10 studies and you one of those, those had a nominal benefit and the rest had these really detrimental effects, yeah. but they'll pick that one out to run it through FDA, hoping to get their profit back yeah. before it's black boxed. Yeah. And in the, in the interim, people are getting killed. And a lot of that's not being covered by mainstream media because yep. they don't want to jeopardize their advertising right. profits that are coming in from those commercials. Yep. So it's, it's just a rampant issue. Well, um, and and until people start really standing up and saying, I'm going to boycott this channel because they have pharmaceutical commercials. It's not apt to change. No, it's not. And it's a shame that it's not getting attention because there is a movement among scientists mm -hmm. um, to get this data exposed. Mm -hmm. um, oh, gosh, I can't remember where it was. But there was some company that made a really cool, uh, it was almost like a game that you could play online that illustrated this concept. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to dig it up and do a follow-up to this episode <laughs> and tell people how to find it. I, I we'll have part two. I've totally forgotten about it, but now I'm remembering like, oh yeah, several years ago, I found this website where you could go through this little sort of interactive exercise mm -hmm. where you're doing trials for some condition and you see the outcomes and you're you know, you're narrowing your patient population that's going mm -hmm. through the trials and you're mm -hmm. excluding data until eventually you get to that data that works and gets you approval and everything. And it just highlights 
um, just how serious um, that problem is. And it's like, mm-hmm. hey, this isn't just a game. This right. is what happens. Um, you know, this is well known among scientists. And it's a battle that um, some scientists that I know that work in, um, you know, private industry, it's an ethical battle they have because um, a scientist will get a job at a company and mm-hmm. the company's like, okay, I want to do clinical trials right. on whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they get wrapped up into um the system where they want to do good scientific work but then the company's like well no we want to exclude people that have these conditions exclude right. people that have this exclude mm-hmm. people that have that and basically creating a sample population that does not represent the broad right. patient population mm-hmm. at large um and then doing multiple studies trying to find the data that works oh shred that data mm-hmm. keep this data whatever yep. and it it really eats away at a lot of scientists to eventually they're just kind of like, well, this is just the game I have to play to have a job to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I understand that piece too, that it's not straightforward because um, a lot of these scientists are trying to live and mm-hmm. trying to make a living. And I think some people have perceptions that scientists must be super wealthy and you know <laughs> top of the food chain and it's like no that's not the case it's extremely hard to find ways to do research to mm-hmm. find money to mm-hmm. you know be able to do the type of work that we would like to do um and so the consequences a lot mm-hmm. of us end up working for private companies that right. have their own interests and, and it's yeah, like, yeah you lose the objectivity you lose the integrity yeah um, and, and not a lot of people understand what parameter to look for to, to determine if research outcomes being sold to them right. are valid. Yeah. So they don't catch those little details. Right. I mean, it's extremely difficult, if, ev- if it's even possible, to understand whether um, there's uh, quote-unquote dark data mm-hmm. behind uh, a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And, and to balance this out, too, you know, just because research is funded by a private company, it doesn't mean it's bad research. No, um, no but not necessarily. Yeah, it's it's just you you have to be critical about everything. <laughs> is kind of what it boils down to. There are companies that don't have patients' best interest in mind. That's, exactly. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, exactly. They have their profits in mind. And, yeah, and their shareholders. And there's and... such an entanglement between the pharmaceutical companies and our politicians that they're protected. Yeah. They're protected. They're allowed to run amok and do things that are not in the best interest of patients. And they have and a, a lot of money. As a healthcare professional, I have a big problem with that. Yeah, yeah. As a human, I have a big problem with right, that. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so getting onto this concept of research and everything and looping it back around to cannabis. Sure. Um, what would you like to see, um, something I ask every guest, uh, what would you like to see from the future of cannabis research and cannabinoid research? Because it's picking up mm-hmm. steam a lot. There's, it it's There's a lot of momentum behind mm-hmm. cannabis research now, especially with the farm bill passing now. I think what a lot of people haven't realized is um, while some people had a conception that the farm bill was going to legalize CBD and it didn't quite do that, um, what it did do is it has made it where every university in the country now can touch cannabis mm-hmm. um, and can start to do research. And I've, I've right. been work, uh, been communicating with a, a couple different universities um, that are starting to try to launch um, pilot research programs with cannabis through, mm-hmm. uh, through hemp. And um, so, I mean, we're, we're about to see a tidal wave of research oh, yeah. uh, coming in. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what do you hope to see? Um, from the future of all of that? Human trials. Yeah. 
I mean, with, with the you herb. can only transfer so much from mice trials to humans. So that's a big yeah. one, you know, ensuring that that the formulations of cannabis being used in this research is really optimal medicinally. I mean, we see a lot of um, a lot of research on the isolated components, and we know they work very differently. Yeah. And, you know, of course, one of the big teaching um, items that I cover with my patients is how to find medical-grade cannabis. And what we find is, you know, the whole plant is what you want, especially for something like cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, you want that entourage effect. You want that synergy between all of those components and the wisdom of nature. When we start isolating it and fragmenting it and... I like the term bastardizing the plant. Uh, you know, we see bell curves in response where it works for a while. And then as you increase the dose, it stops working completely. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we have some comparative studies that, that support that whole plant is just as effective at 20 to 25% of the dose of isolate. So when oh, you're talking about cost savings for patients, that's yeah, an important piece. Yeah, huge. Wow. Um, and so really, you know, we need more whole plant research. And, and so that... You know, that's a big project that's near and dear to my heart as well as figuring out how can we promote that yeah. or at least be comparing, you know, the isolates with the whole plant mm-hmm. so we can compare the outcomes. You know, I think that's going to yeah. be really important for ensuring that, you know, patients really understand the difference between these formulations and, you know, where CO2 and isolates and things of that nature might be great for symptom management. I've got a headache. I'm going to take a hit off my vape pen. It's great. Quick relief. It's not going to give you that underlying balance that we're after with some of these sick patients. And if a patient's calling me, they're pretty sick. Yeah. I, I don't get patients calling me because they want to get intoxicated. They can usually <laughs> handle that on their right. own. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, these are patients that are that oftentimes cannabis is kind of their last resort and their last-ditch yeah. effort to try to recover their health. And in those situations, you know, like a patient with cancer should not be taking CO2 or isolate. They should be taking whole plant. You know, they mm-hmm. want that underlying balance. They want, you know, as much strength as they can get from that formulation. Yeah. So, you know, a- and all I've done in this industry is follow the need. And that's a need that I I saw in my patient outcomes with different products and started researching. Um, there's a an article that, that summarizes our criteria that we use to vet suppliers. Mm-hmm. We don't benefit from the sales of any product. Um, but we vet suppliers to determine who we'll refer our patients to. Mm. And it's flow. Yeah. It's it's flower-derived, lab-tested, organic, and whole plant. You'd be surprised how hard it is to find <laughs> suppliers that meet yeah. those criteria. Um, you know, there's a lot of CO2. There's a lot of fancy marketing. There's a lot of fear oh, about gosh, ethanol yeah. extractions, yeah. you know, and how alcohol is bad for you. You know, they're, they're basically lying and not explaining that they purge the alcohol and ethanol extractions. Right. So they are safe. There's no ethanol left, ideally. You know, and lab testing would show mm-hmm. if there was. So, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's a big need. And it came from patients calling me, and sometimes they've spent thousands of dollars on product that they got from a friend of a friend. They don't right, know right, what right. it was. They don't or know the strain. The it wasn't lab tested. They don't yeah. know how it was made. And, you know, it could be toxic. <clears throat> it could make their situation worse. So we hate having to say... You might have wasted your money because we can't condone the use of that product. Right, yeah. Well, and even with with ethanol extracts, or let me say alcohol extracts, because Mm -hmm. um, there are some people that are making alcohol extracts with isopropyl alcohol, Mm -hmm. and then some people that are using food-grade ethanol and and other forms like that. And so... Yeah, it's those nuances that's important for consumers mm-hmm. to understand that mm-hmm. all these extracts are different. I'm I'm working on making some YouTube videos right now about this um, issue mm-hmm. um, and about the term full spectrum. Yes. Um, and yes. how I would love it's to see deceptive. that term just like disappear <laughs> completely because 
It's I it's just not. it's just a marketing <laughs> term that's just been used every way a company can figure out how to use it. Yes. And um and you know, yeah, consumers yeah. just really have to focus on like ideally can I see the test results? Can I see what cannabinoids are actually right. in this um, right. in the extract that's in this product? Mm-hmm. Can I see results about terpenes? And I wish there were easier ways to get data about other compounds in cannabis, you know, mm-hmm. but right now that's where we're at. We're yeah. cannabinoids and terpenes is about the only data you'll really be able to consistently get. But um, yeah, it's very deceptive because full spectrum makes you think that broad spectrum of those 500 therapeutic components right, in yeah. the flower but are in this formulation yeah. when realistically it's oftentimes an isolate plus a few terpenes thrown back in. So, so a dozen yeah. com- compounds versus upwards of 500 possible. Which one is really full spectrum? Right. Yeah. Not the one with a dozen. And, and that's what they're calling it. And when you just see these products on a shelf and you just see full spectrum and there's no description because mm-hmm. in typical herbalism, um, you list the plant that you extracted Mm -hmm. and you list what parts of the plant were extracted. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and oftentimes you'll also list the, um, in some generic terminology, what type of extraction was done. And that at least allows a consumer to say, Oh, for instance, if it was a cannabis product that was labeled correctly, Oh, this was a cannabis extract made from ethanol. Oh, and they used, um, they use flowers and leaves and roots and, mm-hmm. you know, all these different pieces or, oh, you know, they use the flower or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and to have a better understanding of the differences. Mm-hmm. But right now, all these products look the same. Right. And they're not. Um, yeah, and exactly. That, that's a big concern I have. Huge. Uh, just especially with CBD because mm-hmm. um, yep. it's in every state, basically. There mm-hmm. are some states cracking down on it that are starting to um, – go around and confiscate CBD products. Um, Some um, of them should be confiscated. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Some of them should not be on the shelf for sale. Yeah. Not all products are created equal. Yeah. And there, and there is some good role. The FDA does serve sometimes Mm -hmm. (laughs) with um, trying to ensure, you know, that manufacturing operations meet some basic minimum Mm -hmm. uh, industry standards. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so many of these uh, CBD products are far 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 from bare minimum quality Mm -hmm. standards um yeah yeah we're 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 very careful to teach patients if it says industrial hemp question it right what is their raw material yeah if they could have raw material that's hemp stocks out of chernobyl that could be full of radiation and we're not testing for that so or it's just like you know seeds that have been ground and Mm -hmm. milled you know milled and extracted biomass i mean yeah you want flour derived flour is where all of the good stuff is made that's what we want in our medicine yeah yeah for sure and um before we wrap things up, one thing I wanted to talk about before and forgot until right now, and this is, I'll bring it back to the surface, sure. different types of cannabis products. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with patients, what are the, um, what are the different methods of in- administration um, that you commonly see? Uh, what tends to work better for different scenarios? Because, um, you know, you mentioned taking a hit off a vape pen might help some pain or headache mm-hmm. or something, but... Um, I imagine when you're working with patients with much deeper issues, you're probably getting into um, things like edibles and tinctures and mm-hmm. um, other administration methods, sublingual. Um, right. Can you comment on that? Yeah. My favorite, especially for patients just starting out, you know, oftentimes they're brand new to cannabis. They've never tried it before. Um, the sublinguals are great. 
the tinctures because mm -hmm. you can literally count the drop and know how many milligrams you're taking. It's easy to exactly titrate. Um, you know, some of our patients that, that have higher dosage needs will graduate to, to Rick Simpson oil or or FICO, we call it full extract cannabis oil, yeah. um, which is, it, it's super concentrated and it's almost a tar-like mm -hmm. consistency, making it very difficult to dose. And like the Rick Simpson protocol says, take a grain. Yeah, know, right, a, a rice grain, grain size. Rice. Well, yeah. there's all kinds of different types of rice and who might, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you do short grain rice, it's probably going to be right. about half the amount as long grain rice. Is it so a swollen piece of rice that's right, absorbed water? Or? Right. As a nurse, I like accurate <laughs> dosing. So yeah. we tend to go with tinctures. We tend to start off with sublinguals um, with the goal of getting a patient on a baseline support protocol where they're taking it two or three times a day, either sublingually or, you know, if they don't like the taste or they yeah. want that longer effect of the liver metabolism, they can put it in a capsule and swallow it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just depends on the situation. Um, inhalants are great for quick onset. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my daughter, her, her behaviors are stabilized and manageable. Um, the exception still probably being PMS week is still yeah, where we kind of yeah. duck and cover. And um, and so we've learned, you know, we, of course, we know her her little signs that she's starting to ramp up to her full mm. tilt behavior, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, these days is full tilt behavior is maybe 10 minutes. We're back in 2013, 2014. Gosh, sometimes she'd go on for two or three hours and literally yeah. rage until she was oh, physically man. exhausted and she would pass yeah. out. So you notice the difference. It's not perfect. I never right. say it's perfect. But, you know, when she's starting to ramp up, um, she'll actually ask for her straw, which is her code word for vape pen. That's oh. how we taught her to use it. It was yeah. suck on it like a straw. If she asks for her straw, we go running for it because we know that's at 10 seconds. It's going to mm -hmm. calm her immediately. And hopefully, yeah. you know, she'll do a 180 and never hit that full tilt behavior yeah. where she's out of control and needing time out and, mm -hmm. you know, kicking the doors and the walls and all that. So, um, you know, it just depends on the situation. It really does. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we tend not to do a lot of edibles. Um not initially anyway, just because it's so easy to take too much yeah, yeah. and then you're stuck with it for six to eight hours on average, yeah. you know, sometimes longer depending on yeah, yeah. that person's mm -hmm. genetics and yeah, their liver metabolism liver, yeah. pathways. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we tend to not go there. Topicals are great. Topicals mm -hmm. are great, especially for, you know, quick relief of pain. I have a pain topical I use a lot, but um, those are kind of the main ones. Yeah. You know, and, and we like ethanol, food grade ethanol extractions. Isopropyl alcohol makes me a little nervous, yeah, especially yeah. with these big mm -hmm. producers. You know they're not testing every batch. And if there's some ISO left in there, it could make a patient really sick. Yeah. So we tend to, to not opt for anything that could be a risk factor right. when possible. Well, and, you know, from my perspective, I do work with companies trying to help them get. Um... Hold on. Sure. All right, we're running long. <laughs> yeah, I'll wrap it up after this. We're almost done. <laughs> um, you work with companies that... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, for me, I work with a lot of companies trying to get them GMP compliant uh, to prepare for FDA compliance. Mm -hmm. And a big piece of that is trying to make sure all of your um, component ingredients are food safe. Right. And while there is some room for using ingredients that aren't, if you're going to purge them out, have them removed, improve that and everything. It's just a better situation altogether to just use food-grade ethanol. I agree. And and isopropyl alcohol, um, I, have, I have concerns in general having seen a variety of uh, product manufacturing facilities. I have 
very big concerns about worker safety mm -hmm. um, and how uh, they're making these huge batches of extracts and mm -hmm. being exposed to fumes, mm -hmm. whether from ethanol or isopropyl alcohol. Right. But the isopropyl alcohol piece um, bothers me um, a little bit more. And I don't know if that's because of my own ignorance. I, I genuinely just don't know a lot about mm -hmm. um, the safety of isopropyl alcohol in those sort of industrial applications. I've used it, you know, in the lab to do analytical extractions and that sort mm -hmm. of thing um, before where I'm exposed to very little amounts of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just genuinely don't know what the uh, the risks are of being exposed to large quantities of it's it. It's toxic. And, yeah. I, I mean, There's I no would, way around it. And yeah. I mean, ethanol in its way is toxic as well, but at least if it's food grade, you know it's not going to poison somebody like isopropyl will. Yeah, yeah. And then your so. body can deal with it a little more easily <laughs> absolutely yeah. absolutely so in a lot of people that do the food grade ethanol extractions and maybe iso too they're using a distiller so it's reclaiming the spent alcohol cleaning it out um, it's just an amazing process i don't i'm sure you've seen it but yeah. you, you know you soak the plant matter in food grade alcohol yep. and then you strain it out and the alcohol is green yeah, yeah. And then when it comes back out of the distiller, it's clear again, and it's stronger. Right. <laughs> and you yeah. can use it on the next batch, so it's yep. cost-saving, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? And there are some little at-home ethanol extractors that have good seals on them, and it's reducing people blowing up their garages and things like that, <laughs> like yeah. we've seen here recently. Yeah. <laughs> it's, from, from my experience, it seems like the stories of, of people um, yeah, causing explosions in their homes from... Mm -hmm. Um, ethanol extractions or like BHO and PHO, mm -hmm. butane and propane hash oil and everything. It seems to be going down. Uh, yeah. Hopefully that's, people are getting a little smarter about that. And mm -hmm. hopefully people just don't need to do it at home. Like they mm -hmm. have access to stuff. They can figure that out, at least in some states. Yeah. So another good take home on that piece, you know, if, if somebody hears RSO, Rick Simpson oil, you want to ask, what is that solvent? Because he recommends <laughs> things like acetone and like isopropyl alcohol and naphtha, yeah. things that are very toxic. And especially if a patient's trying to do it themselves, you know, that's that's high risk, yeah. very high risk. So, you know, I've, I've used food-grade alcohol forever, and recently I even upgraded to organic 190 mm -hmm. proof alcohol um, just to get away from that GMO substrate of, of Everclear. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think as we learn better, we do better is kind of the take home there. But yeah. be careful. Be yeah. Careful. That's kind of the overriding message of our, our whole conversation. Mm -hmm. More education, Absolutely. better behavior. Absolutely. <laughs> Things get better overall. So Absolutely. Well, um, you've been super generous with your time. I think we've Wow, we've gone um, almost an hour and a half. That's great. Yeah, um, yeah we we could talk all day. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll sit down again and, and talk more. I definitely want to hear more about um, um, a variety of different things that you're working on. Um, sure. I want to catch back up and, and see how it's going and what you've learned. Absolutely. Um, so um, anyway, um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and and talking. And yeah. um, I want to give you a moment um, just to let people that are listening know. Um, well first of all, know that this interview will probably come out a couple of months, few months after we're recording it. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, um, if you want to share um, with listeners ways that they can um, learn about some of the things you've talked about, finding that handbook, mm -hmm. the nurses approved program, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff that you're doing, if you want to sure. um, just let them know how to find you and that of sort of course. thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm online at integratedholisticcare.com. Um, that's the nonprofit where we offer consultations and there's, there's, blogs and articles on there, a couple of that I've re referenced today, um, the one on the flow criteria and, and making sure your cannabis is optimal medical quality. Um, there's, you know, my daughter's story, which 
Yes, is here. It uh, it featured on the front cover of a nationwide magazine a couple of years ago. That nice. was kind of wow. my coming out of the cannabis closet moment. Um, so there's a lot on there about autism and CBD for autism and why that could be problematic for some kids. Um, I'm also founder of the Cannabis Nurse Approved Program. It's a very new business, just just launched in April. Uh, but this is, you know, this is our project to try to highlight medical quality producers mm-hmm. um, that are that are meeting those slow criteria so that we can refer patients in good in good faith and know that you know it's it's really an optimal company and medicine for them um as far as getting in contact through either of the websites i'll also be i just got confirmed as a speaker at the cannabis science conference coming up in portland in september so i don't know if this will air by then but um that's another another potential time to connect if if you're there come by and say hi great so yeah awesome well that sounds uh sounds wonderful i have to check all of that out Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you all for listening to this conversation. I'm sure we'll have, uh, more very soon. Um, if you want to find more information about the Curious About Cannabis podcast, um, you can check out cacpodcast.com and, uh, there'll be some extra content there. I want to get, um, some of the resources, um, that you and I have talked about on this podcast and off the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I want to get some links, um, on the, the podcast website, uh, to, refer people to some of that Mm -hmm. and um, as always you can connect with curious about cannabis on instagram facebook or twitter on instagram we're at curious about cannabis on facebook we're at curious about c because you cannot say cannabis in your uh names on facebook which is funny since facebook owns instagram um (laughs) and good luck finding me under cannabis nurse janet (laughs) right and uh and then on twitter uh we're at about cannabis and then uh, we're also on YouTube now as well. So you can search for the Curious About Cannabis YouTube channel where we'll have um, excerpts from some of these interviews on there as well as additional educational videos um, that I'll be working on producing and putting up there. And if you like what you hear and you like what we're doing here, um, consider becoming a member on the Natural Learning Enterprises Patreon at patreon.com slash naturallearningenterprises. Uh, thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks and take it easy. Bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.